God, thank you for how you have so faithfully spoken to your people throughout the centuries of time. We pray with great expectation that you would speak to us again this morning. But God, for that to happen, we need you to breathe upon us. To breathe upon me that I would speak the words that you would have me speak faithful to your word. And that you would also prepare our hearts, prepare our ears, prepare us to be able to be that good soil to receive your word. And not just receive it, but live according to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I can still see the sign vividly in front of me saying, beware of alligators. It was a warning sign. Uh, My brother, myself, and some of our buddies were down at a pro-life training conference thing in Florida. It was at a retreat center. And as any retreat center in Florida that has a body of water as part of it, there's a warning sign saying, beware of alligators. But we took that warning sign as an invitation because my brother had brought a knife with him. He's kind of like, he carves and does that kind of stuff. So he had this really big knife. And so he, with some really strong tape, attached it to a big pole. And, and we took the pole, took the canoe. Somehow our, our path took us by all the ladies and we made public the fact that we were going to go alligator hunting. I, I know you would have done the same. And we got into the water, and we just canoe out, all happy, ready to get in, in the canoe. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely in a canoe. And uh, we, we just paddled out, all happy that we are going to like get dinner for everybody. Because alligator meat, is, that stuff is fresh, especially when it's fresh. And so all of a sudden, we see an alligator. Now, I've, I've, I've read about alligators. I've, I've seen them on TV, on YouTube. But this, it's I, it was right there. I was the one, not with a paddle, but with the pole and the knife at the end of it. And it was close enough that I could have jabbed that thing with my spear. Only when, when we looked into the eyes of that alligator, that big knife I was holding in my hand became very, very small. And, and I, I remember I stand there and can hear like the, the heavy breathing of everyone in the canoe. I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. I'm holding the thing. I'm like, guys, should I do it? Should I stab it? And I'm realizing like, there's, there's no hope. My knife against this alligator. Like the, it was, it was a, it was a puny small knife. And, and also the alligator, like, it was, it was looking at us and just poof, under the water. And the guys just started canoeing as fast as they could. And people started praying. I, I, I don't, I don't think there were, some of them were cessationists. They're praying in tongues. Like, it was intense. It was, it was next level. And so, so we get back to the shore and, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it, I can, I can see it so vividly because it wasn't that long ago, regrettably. It was, it was just last year. I'd like to think I was more mature than that, but I'm not. We, we've heard about alligators, but once we saw it, we realized an axiom I, I hope you all have already taken to heart. Never underestimate an alligator, right? Now, perhaps a better analogy from trying to get at, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, and if you haven't, that's your homework today, this afternoon, get it done. But in, uh, in the final one, the last battle, the, these people believe, uh, don't believe in, in this pagan religion. Um, and, and at the center of this pagan religion is, 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 is the enemy, Tash, who represents like, Satan. And so one of the, the main dark characters, calls upon Tash to come. He doesn't believe Tash is actually a thing. Uh, I don't know if it's pronounced Tosh or whatever, but Tash, Tosh, potato, potato. They call upon this thing they don't believe in, and this this evil, wicked, like, Satan character shows up. They've underestimated him, and, and he's actually this, this wicked, ferocious, human-consuming thing and causes destruction, and, and they realize never underestimate the enemy. I share these uncomfortable analogies with you, and, and they become uncomfortable as you realize who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about Tash. I'm not talking about the serpent, the enemy of our souls, nor am I talking about alligators and wildlife that you might see in National Geographic. I'm actually talking, trying to make an analogy for God. 
for God, the God that we've invited into our hearts, the God that we sing our songs to as we turn into to, to Amos and read God's description of God's self, we encounter a God so much more fierce and so different than the God that we expect. He's so much more real and he's so much more terrifying than we'd expect. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, this is God's words, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. And shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with a sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Who is this God? Who is this God that we've invited into our hearts, of whom we are the temple of his Holy Spirit? Who is this God that we love and sing our songs to and teach little kids about in Sunday school? You hear just beyond those doors. Who is this God that Amos sees that we love and follow? He's so much more fierce in these words, than, at least than I expect, and perhaps you. We've spent the past 10 weeks, our entire summer, in the book of Amos. And one of the things we've seen again and again and again is God rebuking his people on calling them from their false religion that they had made. Their religion had been made by their king, King Jeroboam. He's the one that brought this, this split between the, the one country of Israel about 150, 60 years before, uh, before Amos is reading these words. Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12 had led a revolt and, and him with 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel had, had kind of cut the land in half and they took the northern kingdom called Israel and then the Davidic kings, the, the sons of David had Judah, which was Jerusalem and the southern half of Israel. And when he did that, he created this false religion and, and this is what God is speaking into. The, the false religion had so much of the real religion, the real stuff of Yahweh. But there was a few things that, that were, were not okay. And one of them we talked about before is that they had copied the practice of the Canaanites. The, the Canaanite religion was all about the, the sacrifices you do, the liturgy you'd read, this stuff. But it wasn't about how you live. And so in, in, their, in their practices, they had uh, very specific ways that you're supposed to like pour out your, your wine libation before the gods. And, and ways that you're supposed to like, offer your child a sacrifice to Baal. And, and these types of things. It was very specific about the sacrifices you would make. Your religious, spiritual duty. But it didn't speak into your employee-employer relationships. It didn't talk about how you're supposed to treat your children or your wife or your husband. It didn't speak and define how, how healthy sexuality is supposed to be. It didn't touch the stuff of everyday life. It was just a religion of, of the stuff that we do. And, and, and you see that if you've been here these other weeks or you just read through Amos yourself, you, you can see that God again and again is saying, what, stop it with your sacrifices. Stop seeking me at Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba. Stop doing all this religious stuff. I want your life. I want you. I want you. Not just your words, not just your songs, not just your liturgy, not just your spiritual stuff. In a sense, he's, if he was speaking to us, he's saying, I don't just want your Sunday mornings. I don't just want your Wednesday small group or your church on Wednesday. I want you. I want your life. The scriptures are filled with God revealing the way of life, his way, his way of love, the way that we're supposed to treat our employees and employers, the way that we're supposed to, uh, like the descriptions of even when you build homes, how to do it in such a way that there's safety standards to protect the innocent, a call for us to care for the poor and the downtrodden. It, the, the, the way of God, the true religion, speaks to all of life. 
and yet the people of God had begun to follow the Canaanite way, although they weren't doing necessarily all the practice of the Canaanites. They actually were doing many of the things that the, the scriptures called them to regarding their sacrifices, but that's where it stopped. They had made a religion that they could contain just regarding their sacrifices. And, and that can be so many of us today, that our being a Christian means that we go to church. It might mean that we tie. That might mean that we do these spiritual things, but we're not actually letting it shape and define our life. And the religion that Jeroboam had made for his people that reflected so much of the true religion, it, it had this, it was this religion of convenience. You see, Jeroboam was concerned that his people would go to the temple where they were supposed to offer sacrifice to God. And he was concerned that if they'd go to the temple, which was in Judah, the other kingdom, that their allegiance to him would begin to erode. So to protect his own kingship, to protect his own country, he created this, this counterfeit religion, a religion that was still trying to worship the real Yahweh, and yet he had made this stuff that was more convenient for them. So instead of going down to the temple, he made the, the, they had their own altars. And, and, and part of that, the, the, when that all began, was he started this, this, um, this feast of booths. It was like the Feast of Booths, Sukkot. It's a, one of the biblical feasts God commanded his people to keep. In 1 Kings 12, as he launches his own kingdom, he creates a, a feast that kind of mirrors that. So much of the practice that God had said. And in, in Jeroboam's religion, rather than the Levites being the priests, the ones that God had set aside, he made it so anyone who wanted to be could be a priest. And he himself stood by the altar in that place of the, of like the high priest and put himself as a mediator between the people and God. And, and this is, as much as so much of it sounded like truth and like the, the stuff of Yahweh, of the true God, I am who I am, it, it was of his own making. And so one of the things that, not, not for you, but, but for me that I've been praying in preparation for today as I read Amos 9 is, God, show me where I've taken your righteous ways and, and just twisted them a bit to be a religion of my own convenience. Where I'm beginning to, fi- to define the terms and life and everything based on what feels right to me, what's convenient for me, what, what I can contain instead of what actually is of you. And so as I thought, thought back to the conversations I've had, even the past few months with, with fellow young people about what the Bible says about so many different things, about marriage, about sexuality, about the, the roles of, of husbands and wives, about what church should look like, all these things. I, I, I listen in my memory to the amount of times that we have said, well, this doesn't feel right to me, or, or I feel like this is true, and that type of language. When we're speaking like that, well, this is what seems right to me, this is what feels right to me. One of my friends actually used the, the words of, um, he's like, I'm cool with, with the Bible's teaching about everything except for this. And then he has his own definition for, for a contemporary issue. And, it, and I, I like that he's honest about that, but I'm concerned for him, I'm concerned for me, I'm concerned for all of us in this postmodern world that we're okay defining how we should live life and how we should walk with God based on our own feelings, on our own sense of what's right and wrong. Because although sometimes our senses are right, Although sometimes you're moved with compassion to the ways of God and caring for the things he cares about, many times we're going to find that, that our gut feeling is wrong, that our, our feelings deceive us, that what seems right to us is actually not right, and what seems so healthy to us and loving to us and caring to us is actually hatred toward that person and that it's actually to their own detriment. And so if we're going to be a people who are going to listen to the words of Amos, when I, not just hear the words be read in Nora's epic Bible reading voice, but actually like, obey the word, of the, the way of God. We need to be people who are asking God and looking at the scriptures, God, what do you say? God, how do you define marriage? How do you define what church should look like? How do you define sexuality? How do you define, how, what, what do you say? I mean, if we're at our, our job and I've done it, I, I've been there at work and, I, and there was, 
I, just confession time, the, the courts can come after me later, but I was working at Parliament Hill and I come across a letter that someone had email, uh, sent into my member of Parliament and somehow I had missed it and so now it's months upon months overdue. And it'd be very inconvenient for me to bring it to my member of Parliament and let her see that I actually had missed this and, and it'd, it'd be awkward. And so I shredded it. And I told myself, like, this is, you know, like, no one's going to miss it. Not, no one, I'm not going to get in trouble. The person doesn't expect a response, whatever. I said all these things that, you know, I think most of that's true. And they, they never complained about it. I'm, I'm fine. No one knows about it except now for all of us. But I, 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 did, I did wrong. I, I, what I did was actually completely wrong in, in getting rid of that letter. But, but I was defining what's right. It, just, it felt right to me. It felt a lot more right to me than going and fessing up to my boss. I did that. And I, I share that with you knowing that I'm speaking not to a bunch of perfect people, but to people who also, in various ways, have defined what's right and wrong for yourselves. And the words before us, not just today, but through the pages of Amos, God is calling them not to define what's right and wrong based on what they feel at the moment or what seems right to them and their friends and their culture, but to actually yield to God in his ways. But perhaps the most devastating way that, that we do the religion of Jeroboam, defining things in our own terms, is actually our definition of who God is. If you think of the songs we tend to sing, if you think of the, the prayers we tend to pray, they reflect certain elements of who God is. But if you actually read the scriptures, which we're blessed to be in a church that does, not just our favorite parts, but through the whole Bible, you see a God who's so different than we expect. So much more real and invasive, in a sense, than we expect. Who cares about every element of life more than we would like him to. Who, who is more fierce who has his holiness, his righteous justice, more than we expect. We tend to like to speak today in North America about the kindness and the mercy and the love of God. But the severity of God is not something we like to think of. In Romans 11.22, Paul writes, consider the, the kindness and the severity of God. And I think most of us like to just do the first bit, to consider the kindness of God. But the kindness, the love, the mercy, the grace of God is seen in its fullness when you actually consider the fullness of who God is, including his holiness and his righteous wrath and judgment. We need to not define God on our own terms and what we like. Again, we have invited this God into our lives, into our hearts. We are a temple of this Holy Spirit, of who he is. Last year, I, I, I was just really tired. I wanted to spend some sweet time with the Lord, so I turned on some worship tunes on my phone and I, I, I made myself an Epsom salt bath and lit some candles, turned the light off. And I just like was just chilling with the Lord. I'm just like, God, thank you for your goodness and kindness. And then, boom, like a train, it just hit me, these passages from Amos and, and who, the, the, the severity of God. And I became afraid, rightly so. Also, I'm just like, who is this God that's in, in the bathtub with me? You know, like, who is this God who's right there dwelling with me? who we've invited into our hearts. He's so much more fierce than I understand. And, and because so many churches, we don't actually tend to preach this stuff. Again, I'm so grateful that Church of the Messiah does. But so many of the churches I'd grown up with never touched this stuff. I had no mechanism for, uh, no grid for understanding these passages of the Bible. All I saw was that God was so much more fierce than I can understand. You know, the... The, the opening chapters, opening verses of Amos speaks of the lion that roars. Or rather, it speaks of the God who roars. And it's so easy for us to kind of see that simply as a lion, and we get that lion's roar, so that's okay. But as I was reading through this, that actually this is the king who roars. This is a very fierce king standing before us. And him being a king who roars, is like the, the roar of God is not an empty roar. 
It's not just that he, he, he roars as a, as a big show and a big, whatever, like light show, but really he's this little lamb. Yes, he is the lamb that was slain, but he also is the one who roars and not, and, 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 and brings, brings judgment upon it. And so you see as we've gone through chapter by chapter looking, carefully, meticulously looking at the various ways that God's calling his people to life, to repentance, to his ways, including caring for the poor, including healthy sexuality, integrity, like sexuality defined by God and his, what is pure. We've looked at uh, so many different elements of, of walking with God. And, and yet, again and again in it, we see that he's just pouring out, pouring out um, a judgment because they're not walking in his ways. Um, before moving on, Jeroboam, and he establishes religion and says, like, this, is, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. And you know, so much of it reflected who the real God is. He, he built these, these like, golden bulls, these, these cows. And, and he's trying to ref- show them some image of strength and something they could see tangibly who God is. But the pro- one of the problems with, with idols, with these things that are trying to speak of the strength and majesty of who the gods are or who God is, is that there's, there's nothing that you can build with your hands that can adequately depict the strength and the might of who God is. And so even as he tried to help his people, and maybe even compassionately show, tried to give them something tangible they could see, the problem is that, again, he was defining a God so much more tame than the God of the Bible. And we've looked at this in previous weeks, how again and again as Amos is speaking to people, turn to life, warning them of judgment. He keeps turning the, their eyes to who God is, the, the Lord of armies, the, the Lord who spoke the universe into being, the one bigger than the constellations, all of this stuff. And he's trying to turn their eyes to who God is because he knows that in them seeing who God really is, and them letting God define who God is, and them expanding their vision of his strength and his might and his power, his holiness, his justice, and his love and kindness, that there will be the strength for their repentance, for their turning from themselves, to turn to the way of life. Second Corinthians 3.18, Paul is speaking of, a, of the same thing when he says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He's saying that our transformation from lives that are defining life in our own terms and selfish and self-focused and using other people and living in that like fake religion that feels so much like the true one but is of our own making, that we are, we're transformed, we're made whole as we behold God with unveiled face, as we see who he really is. And that's, that's what Amos, that's what God through Amos is seeking to do his people, reveal to him, look, look at who the real God is. See his might, see his power, see his love, see him for who he is. We sang just a few minutes ago, give me eyes to see more of who you are. May what I behold still my anxious heart. Take what I have known and break it all apart. You, my God, are greater still. I don't know if we always think about what we're singing. Take what I have known and break it all apart. You, my God, are greater still. If you've ever had something you really believe, and then you find out that you're wrong, a, a paradigm shift, you find things you believe are actually not the way they are, that is a profoundly uncomfortable place to be. It's, it's a scary place to be. Take what I have known and break it all apart. You, my God, are greater still. Those are scary words to sing. And, and, and we can sing them knowing that God delights to answer that prayer. We're saying, God, I have these understanding of who you are and a, uh, like a vision of who you are, but it's not complete. It's not accurate. Would you change it? Would you, would you give me a paradigm shift of who you are? That is an incredible, that is a beautiful, that's a necessary thing to pray. 
That is a prayer in one sense of such safety, of such life. The fullness of life is found in knowing God. And so that is an amazing thing to be praying. But let us realize that we should not be surprised that when God begins to show us through his word that he's a God so much bigger than we understand, so much more holy, so much more just, more severe, more fierce than we understand, that that is God's answer to our prayer in so many ways. But not only in that do we find the severity of God, as we look and wrestle with the reality of this element of God's holiness and his judgment that is coming, we also find life and redemption. Verse 11, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. With these words in Amos 9, verse 12, God is beginning to speak of the reverse of the curse he's pronounced on the world. Edom stands for through the various uh, the, the various uh, prophets in, in the Bible, including Amos in chapter 1. Edom represents the nations, the, the, the pagan nations of the earth. And as, as he speaks of, of them repossessing Edom and Edom coming to, to be called by God's name, this is, this is a, a speaking of the nations that have been uh, doing their own thing far from God, exploiting the innocent in horrific ways, returning to God as they were called to be. Verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. It's speaking of the reverse of the curse on the ground, on the earth. That, that he's saying that, just as in Genesis 3, God has pronounced judgment that the earth will bear or thorns. It will be, it'll be like, like disappointing, frustrating work to till the, the land. Here God is saying that the earth is going to be abundant crops, reversing the curse on the land. In verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. This is more than just the reverse of the curse of the, of the earth, but this is a, a restoration of the people to, to harmony with the ground, with the earth, with the life as it's supposed to be. Back in, verse, in chapter 5, Amos had spoken about how they will build houses, but they will not get to dwell on them. And you know, they'll plant crops, but not get to have, ha- have the crops and all that. And he's saying that there's this, this, the, the curses, they're going to feel it so deeply in, in, his, their, in God's judgment. And here he's saying, no, you're going you're you're to have houses, you're going to live in those houses, you're going to have those vineyards, you're going to drink deeply of, of my goodness, of, 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 of the stuff. He's reversing the curse in such beautiful ways. And then verse 15, I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted. He's been speaking to them of how they're going to be removed from the land and how the, the land, the, the God's covenantal promise that he would bring them into the promised land, he's, he's bringing them out because they, they've broken their part of the covenant. But here in this final verse, he's speaking of restoring them to the land in a way that they'll never be removed. The security, it's, it's more secure. Their, their, God's covenant to them is more secure than anything they've experienced as the people of God. And not just for them, but for the nations of the earth, for the remnant, for all who turn to God, for each one of us. Now, how are these two verse, how are these two halves of this chapter combined? How, how do they even go together? It's almost like whiplash as you read of such ferocious judgment, then all of a sudden God beautifully, not just blessing his people, but blessing all the peoples of the earth and reversing the curse on the peoples, on the nations, on the ground, on, on them and their dwelling. Well, it's actually all found, this is the, it's all found in, in that first verse and then in verse 11. And I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. And then verse 11, in that day I will raise up the booth of David. The northern kingdom, their, their false religion was, was established 
by King Jeroboam, a, a counterfeit king, standing as a counterfeit priest by the altar, leading them in a counterfeit religion that felt so much of the, of the right way, but was his own invention. And now he, Amos sees the, the real king of all the earth, who is the only one who could be the real priest for all the earth, standing beside the altar, as, as the king did at the Feast of Booth. And in that day, I'll raise up the booth of David. Again, in verse 11, according to theologian Alec Mottier, that this is speaking of, of, of the restoration of, 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 the, of, of the real king and the real priest of God as their king and priest. And we know that the, the fullness of, of God as our priest is found in, in the cross. That this, speaking of, of the booth of David, is one of the Davidic prophecies of who the Messiah will be and what he will do. And it's so easy for us to see on the cross just the, the love and the kindness and the mercy of God. And all that is right to see in it, for sure. But it's easy for us to miss out on the, the, seeing the severity and the wrath of God on the cross. Pour out Jesus not only taking the, the nails in his hands, but taking the fullness of the wrath of God on himself. The fullness of the separation, the fullness of the curse in his own flesh, in his own soul, in his own self. Now, in um, 1 John chapter 2, uh, John writes about the about Jesus' crucifixion, his his death being propitiation for our sins, and that's something that we don't like to talk about. Not only because it's a word that most of us is bigger than most words we understand, but because it's a word that contains the severity of who God is. So, Andrew, if you can put up the, the one slide we have for today, if you got this, propitiation, the turning away of wrath by an offering through placating or satisfying the wrath of God. This is a term that some of the pagan nations would use as well, uh, if you read their lit. Um, turning away the wrath of, of, of their gods by an offering through placating or satisfying the wrath. Uh, a word that your Bibles might use in First John chapter 2, uh, some of the, like the NIV 1984, I think it might, some, some of the translations will use the word expiation. Uh, more, even more modern editions of the NIV and the NLT use just the word atonement. And, and those words are, are, are very good words, but they, they don't contain the fullness of what was being written in that expiation refers to the just removal of guilt. Like if you're dirty and just kind of clean it, like when, when your table's dirty and, and you just clean it off, you've like expiated your table, you've removed the, the dirt from it. But propitiation is actually the removal of guilt through the taking on of, of, of the wrath, of the judgment. And that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. He's not just washing us, he's actually taking the, 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 the judgment that we read about here, of, of, of God working evil, not good for them, of God, no matter where they run, no matter how high they climb. He's saying right here, as it refers to Mount Carmel, like no, no matter what mountain you climb to, no matter what valley you go into, I'm going to find you, and I'm going to pour out my judgment upon you. That severity of the judgment that we deserve because we've broken God's holy ways, each one of us. Each one of us have invented our own rules for life. Each one of us has violated God's pure and holy way. And Amos, even more so God, in these words, is speaking words that are dripping of love and mercy as he speaks to them of the coming judgment. You see, if, if, if standing here today, if, if I knew that there were some very hungry lions outside of here, maybe a few hungry alligators as well outside of this building, and I knew that, and they were looking for human flesh, and yet I just came here and I just spoke of all the happy things and just told you about the, the beautiful elements of life and all the stuff and you felt so good about yourself. And then you stepped outside these doors and just boom, a lion ate you. And I knew that. I'd actually be, be hating you through my positive warm and fuzzies. You guys with me? I'd be hating you through my positive warm and fuzzies. And God, in his justice and in his love, 
is warning the people page after page in the, in the book of Amos and through the scriptures. Warning not just the people of Israel many years ago, but us today. That if we continue to live life on our own terms, no matter how much it reflects, and no matter how much it smells like the real religion, no matter how much we invoke God's name, no matter how much we do right sacrifice and sing the right songs and tithe, maybe you tithe more than 10%, you're, you're, just, you're an all-star. Maybe you're, you're so involved in the church and everyone just respects you so much. But if you haven't actually turned to God, looking to Jesus for forgiveness, looking to him for his propitiation for you, and you haven't yielded your life to him, you haven't yielded your life to him and said, God, enough of life on my own terms. My life belongs to you. Then something much worse than a lion right outside this building is awaiting you, and it's the judgment of God. But the beautiful thing right here is that in the warning of God's judgment is, is an invitation to life. That God has actually taken the fullness of the judgment that awaits every one of us in himself 2,000 years ago in real time, real history the real death of his real body, Jesus' real body, and through the real resurrection of him who still lives today, every single one of us can share in, in, the, in the fullness of life that's found in God. That Jesus took the doom that you and I deserved so that we can share in the destiny that, that he deserved. That we can live in the fullness of life. And so for all the words and all the images and all the stuff we've seen of who God is through these words, I think the most beautiful are the very final words of Amos. After all that God has spoken to them of how far they've strayed from him and how much they have perverted his ways, the very final words are, says the Lord your God. God is speaking to a people who have perverted his ways, who define God in their own terms, who've exploited the poor, who've trampled on the innocent. And despite all of that, he still defines himself as the Lord your God. The, for, the book of Amos has expanded our vision of God's might and his strength and his holiness and his transcendence. And yet, we see how, how intimately close God is. He still calls himself uh, attached to, to, our, to, to us. We spoke some weeks ago of, of, that, like, of the image of, of, of knowing so much about God but not knowing him. And we, and we called all of us to, to plead with God, God, I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to know you're like the prodigal son who strayed so far from him and he's, and he's practicing his speech and, and for, to share with the father who he's trampled and sullied his name. He's practicing his speech, all the things he'll try to say to impress him. And then the father sees him, he's running toward him, the son starts saying his words. But then the father, he interrupts his speech. If you go read, read the prodigal son, you'll, you'll see that the father just interrupts the, the apology. He doesn't even wait for all the words. and just embraces him. And I shared with you some weeks ago of being in high school and just being on my knees there, being like, God, I need to know you. I didn't even understand the, the fierceness of God. I didn't understand so much of who he is, but I just knew that I wasn't satisfied with my pastor knowing the beauty and the awe of who God was. I needed to know that myself, not just know about him. And so I shared with you, I was there as a 16-year-old, God, I need to know you, not just know about you. I shared that seeking him and encouraged us to, to pray that same prayer, God, let us not just know about you, let us know you. So it was a prayer so much bigger than I understood and yet so much more awesome than I even realized. But, but as, as we see here, God again and again speaking to them of who they are and saying, I am the Lord your God. God's saying, like, I'm right here, right with you. I am here present with you. This majestic, amazing, powerful, fierce, loving, kind, merciful God 
He's right here as our God, the God of the people he's made. Whether we are, are, are giving him the middle finger with our lifestyle or, or, or we're seeking after him, he's right here, ready to embrace us like the Father. The, the prodigal son didn't realize that even as he was practicing that speech, and even before that, as he was, as he was just living a, a crazy wild life for himself, the Father was out searching for him, looking for him. And so if you're someone who hasn't yielded your life to God, if you find that maybe, maybe your life looks very Christian, but you've been defining God and life in your own terms, I just want to plead with you. Don't wait another day. Actually, just God, just pray today, God, forgive me. Thank you that you've taken the judgment I deserve. I'm yours. Here's my life. Not just my Sunday mornings, not just my prayers and liturgy, but here's my life. My life is for you. Just pray something like that. God, I want to know you. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, through the the pages of your sacred book, through the words of Amos, your words, we have seen so much more of who you are than at least than I expected to see. Seen you as, as the one who roars, seen you as the one who's so holy, who cares about the details of our lives. Lord, I pray, and together we pray what we sang earlier today. Give us eyes to see more of who you are. May what I behold still my anxious heart. Take what I have known and break it all apart. You, my God, are greater still. Would you help us all with unveiled face behold the glory of who you are? Would you help us to come to know you, not just our favorite parts of who you are, but really who you are? Would you save us from ourselves and from living life on our own terms? And would you help us to live a life in every part of our life, our our money, our time, our friendships, our work, our sexuality, and our worship be shaped and defined by the fullness of who you are? Thank you that you have poured out the judgment we deserve on your Son, that Jesus, you've taken what we deserve in your own flesh, that we might share in the abundant life that you've won for us. Would you be our joy and our strength as we yield our life to you? In Jesus' name, amen.